This morning I may proclaim to you the Word of God as we find that in Ephesians chapter 3, the verses 14 through 19. And after the proclamation of God's Word, we'll praise God with the words of hymn 63, stanza 1 and 2. Ephesians 3, once again, the apostle tells us about his prayers. Verse 14, for this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you according to the riches of his glory to be strengthened with might through his Spirit in the inner man that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height, to know the love of Christ which passes knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. This is the word of the Lord. Beloved congregation of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, in the weeks when I was working on this series of sermon on, sermons on Ephesians, I often thought and I was struck by Paul's concept and use of prayer in his letters. And I thought that if anywhere prayer ought to be a very powerful thing, it ought to be in the midst of Reformed churches. It's a curious thing, I think, that often those who are more of an Armenian bent and a Methodist bent have probably been better leaders in terms of the prayer life than those who have been Reformed. Now, why aren't we more leaders when it comes to prayer indeed? Oh, I know, Reformed people often think everything is determined ahead of time anyway, so why do I have to pray about it? God knows everything, so why do I have to pray and tell Him? But we, again and again, we, if we forget another principle of theology is, is the fact that God uses means. Time and again, God uses means. We sometimes argue, for example, I don't have to really talk to my neighbor because if he's elect, he'll get there anyway and he'll be saved. Well, just a minute. You just might be the elected means to bring your neighbor to Christ. And in so, 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 so to prayer. Prayer is a means whereby all kinds of things happen or don't happen in our lives according to the measure of our prayers. God uses means, also the means of prayer. God's election, predestination, is all so magnificent that He even factors into that not just our actions and the actions of others, but even our thoughts and prayers. It's very striking in this letter, striking throughout the Scriptures, that, that Paul gives us deep Reformed theology. This is where we get it all from, canons adore. It all comes from Ephesians, Romans, and these kind of letters. But Paul is always interrupting that great deep Reformed theology to tell us about the significance of prayer and what he's praying about. We read it already. 
verse 15 of chapter 1, For this reason I have not stopped giving thanks for you, remembering you in my prayers. I've not stopped giving thanks, verse 16. I keep asking, verse 17. I keep praying. And so too in the last chapter, he he ends the book on that note, the importance of prayer for the people of God. Chapter 6, verse 18, and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, be alert and always keep on praying for all the saints. Pray also for me. The apostle who knows and gives us this deep, delightful theology knows about and tells us about the power of prayer. James says, Does it not happen among you? Why does it not happen? Because you don't ask. Everything is of grace. This is Paul. Everything is of grace. Everything in everything, God's move is always the first move. And nothing much would come of anything if he turned off the taps of his grace. But yet he says, pray Keep on praying. Prayer is not the last thing we do when everything else fails. It's first. It's the family privilege of the people of God. And so too here in the middle of his letter, he tells us what he's praying about for the Ephesians, for the people of God. The apostle who teaches us about grace teaches us about prayer. It seems rather paradoxical. The more the biblical writers are aware of the sovereignty of God and the power of His grace, the more they're aware of the power of prayer. It seems contradictory as well, but but, but think about this. Our God is so sovereign that He even factors into that sovereignty and all His plans, even our prayers and our wishes, your and my prayers. God's word comes to you under this theme this morning, Paul's prayer for all Christians. He prays that they might be strengthened through the Spirit, that they might truly know the love of Christ. He prays that they would be filled with all the fullness of God. Brothers and sisters, if you think about those three points, and if they indeed do summarize the message of our text this morning, then here's a question. What basically is Paul praying about? Think about this long and hard, and you know that he's praying that all those gifts and blessings that he has just gone on and on about in Ephesians 1 and 2, If you're not aware of that, there's some really long sentences in Ephesians 1 in which Paul just piles up all the blessings that come to us in in Christ from God. And he goes on through the second chapter. Last time I was here, we, we talked about some of those passages in the second chapter. He just goes on and on, talks about all the blessings and the wonder of what we receive in Jesus Christ. And so what is he doing now in chapter 3? He's praying that all these things he's talked about might not just be words on a paper, they might not just be things we know about, but they might be things that take root in our lives and take us over and take us with them. He actually tells us how intensely, how acutely he feels about this prayer when he says two things. First of all, he says, for this reason I bow my knees to my Father. 
You have to realize that the more usual posture for Jewish and Christian prayer was actually standing. In Mark 11, Luke 18, Jesus says, when you stand praying, that's what they usually did. Kneeling happened too, but kneeling happened whenever the intent was to display deep humility when the person praying so keenly felt the need that he could not possibly stand before God, then he knelt down. Jesus kneels in the Garden of Gethsemane, and Paul feels so intensely about this that he says, for this reason I bow my knees, I kneel before. And whom does he kneel before? He kneels before the Father, he says. Which Father? Paul wants to say, before the Father who is the greatest Father of this new family, before the Father who is the best and the greatest Father ever. In fact, says Paul, there is no fatherhood that does not have its origin and its example in this father. To the father from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named. Literally, he says, to the father from whom every fatherhood is named. What does it mean in biblical thought when someone names something? What does it mean when Adam named the animals in the beginning? It meant he had authority over them. What does it mean when Paul appeals to the father who names every family? It means this is the father who has authority over all fathers, over all families. Also the family and especially the family of God. I bow my knees before the greatest father ever. And what does Paul pray about? He prays about two things. Two things that fathers, especially good fathers, really need and are good at. The one is strength and power. You have to realize in the ancient world, a father figure was, was considered to be a powerful person. In a patriarchal society, you wanted your father to have some clout and some ability to make things happen in this world. But the other thing you want in a father is love, a heart of compassion. And a good father really needs to have both of those. Fathers who have power without love can be very scary people. They can even be abusive people. And fathers who have love but have no power, no authority, well, that's the lesser of two evils. But a good father has to have both. He has to have the power, the ability to make things happen, and the love to make it happen in the best way possible for you. Notice, by the way, how in the catechism, whenever the fatherhood of God is mentioned, these two qualities always come up. Both in Lord's Day 9, Lord's Day 46, God is a Father who is both powerful, able, and loving. Lord's Day 9, for example, says He is able to do so as Almighty God, but He's willing also as a faithful Father. A Father who has lots of power but doesn't have the will to use that power for your sake is of limited value. Also today. Good fathers, good grandfathers also today have both of those, power and love. And that's how it's always been. Ever since we were young, we, we used to say, my father can beat up your father. My father is stronger than your father. 
We didn't know as much in those days maybe, but we could feel it in other ways. Love is no less significant. It's part of the brokenness of human life that human dads are not always like that. But the joy of the family of God is that here our father is always like that and he calls for every father to be like that because he is the one who has authority over all fathers and all families. But notice that in this prayer of the apostle, these two concepts are regular features. Verse 16, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with might, strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man. Verse 17, Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith that you being rooted and grounded in love may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and height and depth. Verse 19, to know the love of Christ. Study this passage and, and long enough and you will see that Paul is saying that the Ephesians only get and keep their necessary strength and love when and if they are drawing forth from the Father's strength and from the Father's love. I find it intensely interesting as well to note that in verse 16... We hear Paul saying that we need to be strengthened with power, strengthened with might through His Spirit. We need to be strengthened with might that we ourselves don't have in order that we might draw out God's glorious riches out of His great storehouse. This is uh, quite unusual. We would think that uh, to, 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 to make us more Christian people, to make us people who enjoy the grace of God, God can just do this, and we wouldn't put it in the category of the strength and, and might. We'd put it in the category of the weak and wimpy. When we have to move something physical, we, we need strength, but spiritual, religious things, we can just do that. But this is what Paul prayer, prays that He would grant you to be strengthened with might through His Spirit in the inner being. In other words, it takes might, it takes power for God to make you a Christian and to cause you to be somebody who submits to God's will and His ways to His glory and praise. So this is Paul. Oh God, from out of your great storehouse of strength, I pray that you would use that strength and that power through your spirit in their inner being so that Christ may dwell in their hearts. Again, you see it, all of grace. Things happen in the Christian life only because of the grace of God, only because of the grace of God, and only because God and when God uses his might to change us from stubborn, ornery, foolish people into people who are compliant with Him and His will and His word. We don't have the ability to get into the Christian life. We don't even have the strength to live the Christian life. It takes grace and power from God. And so Paul's just thinking about all those glorious things he talked about in chapter 1 and chapter 2. And he's just praying, God, let these not be words, but let they, these be realities for the people in Ephesus and for God's people everywhere.
At the same time, what are two concrete things that Paul asked for? In verse 16, first part of 17, well, he asked for them to be strengthened in their inner being and to have Christ dwell in their hearts. Many commentators have written about this because they say, well, in chapter 1, he says, these people are already Christians, so why do they need to have this? Don't they already have this? Chapter 1, Paul writes to them as saints, begins to enumerate all the blessings they have. It's just endless. It's delightful. So why then pray now for the Spirit? And why pray for Christ to dwell in their hearts? Well, it's good to note that these two, on the one hand, are really one. To be strengthened in your inner being through God's Spirit is really very parallel to having Christ dwell in your hearts. You can't have one without the other. You only get Christ dwelling in your heart by the power of the Spirit, and the result of the Spirit's work is always a greater presence of Jesus Christ in your life. But it seems Paul is praying for Christ and the Spirit to be present in their lives with a greater intensity and in a more continuous manner. He's not talking about either of these coming into us for the first time, but he's speaking about them abiding, dwelling in us. The verb used at this point is a strong one referring to a permanent abode. We want to be, we want Jesus Christ not just to be an occasional visitor in our lives. We want him to take up residence and to live in us. We want the Holy Spirit not just to be a tourist passing through once in a while. We want him to be someone who lives in us. And that's what Paul's praying for. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts by faith. He's praying for permanence, for a greater intensity at the very core of our being. Power through his spirit in your inner being. Maybe a good way to understand this is this. There's always the danger that our Christian life be nothing more than an intellectual one. That we just reduce Christianity to a matter of the mind, the brain, and the head. Head Christians think that if we know enough scripture, if we study enough theology, if we go to catechism class often enough, and we have enough data, then everything will come right in the Christian faith. It's an intellectualistic, enlightenment kind of approach to Christianity. And especially after a period of doctrinal controversy, it's easy to reduce it to this. Just get your doctrines right, be right on this, and you'll be fine. But think about this with respect to Ephesians. Was there not the danger that all those delightful truths of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2 would just be known abstractly? The doctrine of election, of providence, salvation through grace, the rule of Christ in the heavens. What do we have to do with these? Do we just have to understand them and put them in our brains and understand them intellectually? Many seem to think, for instance, that if they, uh, that you just have to accept the doctrine of justification by faith through grace alone in order to be justified by faith through grace alone. Just know that. Well, don't you have to do more than that? Don't you have to believe it? Don't you have to believe in Jesus Christ and that all of this comes by grace through faith alone? It's a matter of the heart, isn't it? 
And today, in, in evangelical, reformed, scholarly circles, we are coming to the realization that the biblical position gives much more central focus to the, to the heart than it does to the brain. Some have said we have to realize that man is not just a, a rational being, man is a liturgical being. The question you have to ask is not what does a person think, but the question is, what does a person want? It's not really our thoughts that are central, but our desires, and our desires come from the heart. It's quite something, if I can be personal, for me to say this. I spent about four years of my life studying the history of philosophy, the history of thinking, another four years studying theology, and more thinking. And ultimately, Paul's saying, well, it doesn't just come down to thinking. It comes down to people's hearts. It's not what do you think, it's what do you want. It's not what you contemplate, first of all, but to what is your heart directed? Every person is a liturgical being because every person worships something and what they worship is directed not just by what they know, but it's directed by their hearts. You could summarize the matter and say we need to be engaged in the Christian faith with head, heart, and hands. One author whom I've come to know personally through my work is, is a man by the name of Dennis P. Hollinger, and Hollinger wrote a delightful book, you can read it in an evening, Head, Heart, and Hands, Bringing Together Christian Thought, Passion, and Action. A faith of the head, he says, is only talking about facts, doctrine, right thinking. The big question here is, what do we think, and is our thinking right? A faith of the heart, on the other hand, is only talking about feelings and emotions and experience. The big question here is, how do we feel? And a faith of the hands is only talking about application, only talking about responsibility, right action. The big question here is, what will we do? But what do we need to do with all of this? Well, Hollinger says, what is needed is a faith for the whole person. Thought, passion, and action need to be present in our lives and in the life of any church and any movement. It's very simple, but it's very profound. It impacts how we will work out our faith personally, but also as a body and also as a church. Says Hollinger, not only do we need attention to the mind, affections, but we should also allow them to nurture each other. When they join in symphonic concert together, we recognize the head, heart, and hands are not three distinct parts, but they are three interacting dimensions of our whole being. The fact is the individual or the church that is only thinking about the right doctrine, the individual is who is only about the brain can be as cold as ice. And the individual or the congregation that is all about the heart, only thinking about emotions and feelings, lacks direction, knows not where to direct that heart. 
We get our Christian heads on straight, not merely by thinking good thoughts, but also by hearts attuned to God and in actions that reflect the glory and purpose of God. We develop sensitive hearts to the Lord, not just by powerful inward experiences, but by solid biblical and theological thinking and actions that cultivate our passions. And we engender actions of witness, justice, and mercy, not merely by our efforts, but by the profound spirituality of the heart. And by a biblical and theological thinking that can guide and sustain our steps. What do we need? We need heads that are on right, that think theology through, and think it appropriately in accordance with scripture, but we also need hearts that are directed to God and direct all those, all those thoughts in a way that work out into Christian actions. Hands are a, are, a, are a little word for all the actions, all the things that we do. As a point aside, I believe that this integration of head, heart, and hands is a paradigm for so much of the Christian life. Preaching, I believe, needs to address not just one of these, but all three. Effective preaching will address the intellect and help it to think biblically. It will address and connect with the heart emotionally, and it will result in the hands doing different things as it applies the truth of Scripture to people and their communities. Similarly, a Christian church must reflect all three of these to its membership and its community. It needs to have a message for both. It needs to have an empathy for both, a heart for both, and it needs to have concrete action for the benefit of both. And in that way, we in our churches actually wonderfully reflect our Lord Jesus Christ. Because think about him, and think about his life, and think about his death. Was he all about head? Was he all about brain stuff and theology? Yes, he, had, he knew that stuff immensely and tremendously and wonderfully, but he was, first of all, heart. God so loved, loved the world. God didn't just think this up. He loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. But this is Paul's point in Paul's prayer at the end of chapter 3 that the deep, delightful Christian truths that he's been proclaiming in chapters 1 and 2 might not just get lodged in the minds of the Ephesians and all Christians, but that they might move their hearts by the power of the Spirit of God, that we might be strengthened through God's Spirit in our inner being so that Christ may dwell in our hearts through faith. That knowing God and His Son and His Spirit might not just be intellectual stuff for our brains, but that God's Son might dwell in us permanently and his spirit might take up residence. You are the temple of the Holy Spirit. But we have two more points. Fear not, I can be briefer about them. The second point is that Paul prays we might truly know the love of Christ. It's the point of verse 18. Paul prays that we may have power, that we may be able to comprehend Notice again, power, strength, ability, 
and we might be able to, to do what? To grasp how wide and how high and long and deep is the love of Christ. It's actually very striking the words love of Christ are not included because they're not in the original language. Paul just says that you might have strength to grasp how wide and long and high and deep and scholars and the rest of us have to figure out what he's talking about. But context is decisive. He's talking about the love of Christ. Paul's talking about the heart. And his concern is exactly that the people of God might appreciate with their hearts the immeasurable nature of the love of God in Christ. Its length, its height, its breadth, its depth. And again, we don't know exactly what is meant by these four length, height, depth, breadth. Origen suggested they refer to the four points of the cross. Others thought about the perfect shape of the cube of the temple of, of Ephesians 2 and Revelation 21 and 22. And, and still others think it has to do with the world of magic and superstition. Because behind all of Ephesians there's all this magic and superstition that... Uh, the Ephesians, before they were Christians, thought the world was controlled by magic. And Paul comes along and says, no, it's not controlled by magic. It's controlled by Jesus Christ, who rules over all things. And John Calvin just gets fed up with all the wild speculation. But maybe it's not wrong to say with John Stott that this is what Paul's talking about. That the love of Christ is wide enough to embrace all mankind, Jews and Gentiles. You never have to close your doors because the love of Christ has run out. We never have to stop sending missionaries because the love of Christ is done. How wide it is. It's long enough to last for eternity. Two, centuries, two millennia later, we're still reading Paul. Still the grace of God is there long enough to last for eternity. It's deep enough to reach the most depraved sinners. Nobody has to say, I can't come. I'll get the other lineup. No, no. Deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And it's high enough to exalt us all to the highest heaven above. In any case, Paul's main point is not necessarily that we understand this with our brains. Notice what he says in verse 19. He says, you can't even do that. Your brain can't even do that. To know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge, you can't get there. His point is not that we might engage our brains, but his point is that some deep reflection on the tremendous love of Christ should move our hearts. Amazing indeed. Wide enough to embrace all mankind. Long enough to last forever. Deep enough to reach the most degraded sinner. And high enough to exalt us all to the heavens above. And then Paul's third point, or our third point, Paul's prayer, is that we may be filled with all the fullness of God. 
What does it mean? Well, he talks about this in chapter 1, verse 23, the fullness of God. Chapter 4, verse 13, the fullness of God. But here he's saying that this will actually be the result if this prayer is uttered and this prayer is heard. This will be the amazing result if the Father hears and grants this prayer and strengthens the Ephesian churches and this church through the Spirit in their inner being so that Christ dwells in our hearts through faith and we actually do truly know the full breadth and length and depth and height of God's love, then the result is such a church experiences the fullness of God. They experience the tremendous presence, life, power of God, and it becomes everything it's meant to be as a church. What happens to the individual who is filled with all the fullness of God? This, he or she moves towards becoming everything that God means for them to be. What happens to the church that is filled to the measure of all the fullness of God? This, it becomes everything that God wants it to be. Everything. It actually lays the basis for everything that follows also in this delightful letter. Because what happens? The more we are filled with the fullness of God, the more we become what we are meant to be, the more we shift from our brains to our hearts, the more our hands become busy and we become different people who do things differently, who take different actions, who are busy with different measures, the more the hands, as a symbol of all the actions and deeds, become busy. When the head is engaged and understands the principles of Ephesians 1 and Ephesians 2, and the heart has moved according to this passage, well, the more all the actions of chapter 4, 5, and 6 become evident. And what are chapter 4, 5, and 6 about? They're about the hands. They're about the things we actually begin to do as people of God. In Ephesians 4, he talks about the church. And he talks, first of all, about, about unity in the church and how important unity is. The church is not all about you. It's about everybody. It's about working together, about pulling together, because it belongs to Jesus Christ. And he talks about evil and sin and how you are to stay away from it because there are the, you're the people of God. That's very practical stuff. He works out all, about, out all of this stuff. It's about the hands, how the church is going to function and be a light in this dark world. It's going to talk differently. It's going to think differently. And he goes on in chapter 5 and he says, it's even going to do marriage and sexuality differently. It's not going to joke about sex. It's going to know it's part of the, the gift of God. It's going to do marriage better than any other body of people anywhere. It's going to view slavery differently and masters are going to behave differently to their slaves and, and slaves are going to behave differently to their masters. It's going to fight the devil differently. So you see, this is our prayer. This is Paul. This is the word of God. That we would be a people who have our heads on right doctrinally. We know our theology, not just for the sake of that theology. I'm not saying you can abandon it for a moment. But we know our theology because our theology tells us who we are, where we're going, and what this world is all about. But we also are people 
who have soft hearts, softened by the power of the Holy Spirit. How often did God not complain about the hard hearts of the people of God, but when you appreciate the love of God, when you understand the significance of his love and of his grace, it's got to change your own heart as well. And the Spirit will do that when he takes up residency in us. A big-hearted God shapes for himself big-hearted sons and daughters and big-hearted churches. People who are big-hearted to each other are big-hearted to their community and to everyone because that's the kind of God we have. That's the kind of Father we have. It will be a church, a community in which the love of God becomes ever so well known. It's often said, if people don't know how much you care, they will not share. Again, hearts take precedence over brains. If people don't know how much you care, they'll actually begin to share with, they'll tell you things because they perceive in you love and compassion. And they'll begin to share. And then when they begin to share, you can also begin to pray together. And things happen. The power of God is at work and alive. It's tremendous stuff, folks. Are you worried about young people, your home, your family, gone astray? If they've gone astray, it's probably not because they don't know this doctrine or that doctrine. It's probably not because they need some more information from you they don't have yet. It has to do with their hearts. And the best way to open their hearts? Open up your own heart. It's the way office bearers have to work. Not just throw the book at them. Not just give them more knowledge. Show them that you care. And things will begin to happen. Pray with them. The Spirit of God does mighty things. If people don't know how much you care, they will not share. They will resist. They will curl up. But they don't really care how much you know when they know how much you care. And then you have a foundation for prayer. Big-hearted communities become worshiping communities. Reformed churches ought to be churches where prayer replaces gossip. Oh, you want to talk about that person? Well, let's talk about him. But let's talk about him in prayer to God. Reformed churches should be places where Bible study and meaningful prayer go together. This is what the Word of God says. So, Tom, Harry, you're struggling with this. Let's pray about this. We need to pray from out of the Word of God. Prayer forms and shapes our very existence. With heads on right, hearts that are open, will our hands not also be busy to the praise of God, to the benefit of our community. Amen.